2: Well, it's been another wild week. Through all of the indictments amid so much political division, it's easy and understandable to get completely mired in all of that. But today, we're going to do something a little different. Colorado Governor Jared Polis is a statewide leader trying to find common ground in some unlikely places. And he's coming up first. Plus, I'll ask former Congressman Tim Ryan about the balance Democrats need to strike between making the case against Donald Trump and the case for their agenda. Also today, ahead of this week's anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to name some names when it comes to Republicans taking credit for something they voted against. And later, a wide-ranging conversation with gun safety activist David Hogg. I caught up with him on the National Mall to discuss organizing around the plague of gun violence and the start of his next chapter right here in Washington, D.C. last few weeks have been historic, unprecedented, and yes, at times, pretty alarming. Former President Donald Trump is under an avalanche of legal trouble. And remember, those cases are not just about the criminal conduct of one man. They're about the future of our democracy and our very way of life. The stakes for this country could not be higher in this moment. And the question of who is leading the country impacts every single issue you care about. So we'll continue to talk about those cases through every twist and turn. Believe me, I understand that a former president under multiple indictments is enough to shake the confidence of anyone in our system, but today we're going to change things up a little bit, in part because I was pretty alarmed when I saw a recent poll that 37% of voters think we're in danger of failing as a nation. Failing. So I wanted to spend this show talking with some of the people about some of the efforts to make progress, even with the threat of Trump hanging over everything. Not to sugarcoat the challenges, we're not going to do that— but to explore during a period that can feel pretty dark where there are places to be a little hopeful. Even against the backdrop of the past two and a half crazy years, Republicans and Democrats have worked to pass 250 bipartisan bills. Some small ones, but a number that represent big headway. Gun safety legislation, an infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, just to name a few. And at the state level, there are a lot of governors who are not as beholden to the polarizing dynamics we've seen in Washington. Among them, Democratic Governor Jared Polis of Colorado and Republican Governor Spencer Cox of Utah, who recently teamed up to launch a new bipartisan initiative to tone down the rhetoric and promote a healthier dialogue around politics. They're asking Americans to quote, disagree better,
3: There's a healthy way to deal with conflicting opinions. Actually, it's okay to disagree. It's not just okay, it's crucial.
0: Did you just disagree with me about disagreeing? Healthy disagreement means not assuming that the other side is deluded, misinformed, or actively trying to overthrow
3: America. A little respect and curiosity keeps resentment off the dinner table.
2: That sounds good. Governor Polis and Governor Cox think we can all disagree better, but can we? When fundamental rights are being stripped away and when one chunk of the country thinks, with good reason, by the way, the leader of the opposition is a criminal. And how exactly do we do it? So joining me now is the Democratic Governor of Colorado, Jared Polis. He's the vice chair of the National Governors Association. Governor, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I really appreciate you taking the time.
3: Always a pleasure, Jen. Good to be here.
2: So I want to start where I ended there, because a lot of that sounds good. Uh, But with all of the fundamental challenges to the rights of people. I mean, you've talked about those publicly as well. How do we exactly disagree better? And how are you going to measure your success in this effort?
3: Yeah, this isn't just something that's nice to do or nice to have. It's something we have to do to restore our faith and integrity in the system, first of all, what's important to point out is it doesn't mean that anybody, conservative or liberal, needs to compromise their belief or values. What it does mean is that we should have authentic conversations, not questioning the motives uh, of those on the other side, but rather having an authentic conversation about where we disagree, and yes, about where we agree. And there's a lot of ground for agreement as well. So, Spencer Cox and I, through the National Governors Association, representing uh, the governors of all the states and territories, are really highlighting this as what I feel is, frankly, the most important issue right now. Beyond a particular issue, and you and I might get into some later, is this overlay of how we discuss these issues that we disagree, and we've simply got to step up and do better as a nation.
2: So this feels hard at a moment, right, when people, as I said, feel like their rights are being threatened. And there are big, big disagreements on important issues. As you mentioned, you're working with Governor Cox. Uh, he just signed a ban on abortion clinics in his state. How do you disagree civilly? And this is really a lesson for people who are having a hard time with this, understandably, with somebody who you have such fundamental disagreements with.
3: Well, I think from our perspective and the way we talk about it, it's important to bring people together. Uh, And I think what you'll find is that those who are choice advocates, myself included, yourself included, uh, we would love to find ways to reduce unwanted pregnancies. When a woman faces that choice, it's always very difficult. And of course, I'll uh, argue every moment that it is their choice. But how did that woman get to that situation? Um, How can we make sure that women are equipped uh, with the right information, the right access to birth control? to avoid ever having to face what's a very gut-wrenching decision, no matter how or if the government weighs in on it.
2: You're, I want to ask you about something personal, too, because this is, this is where it becomes very hard for people. I mean, you're, but maybe this can be a lesson to others. You're an openly gay politician. Uh, you were one of the first. you Right now, there are Republican policies centered around culture wars, demonizing the LGBTQ plus community. So this means also disagreeing civilly, as you said, with people who may disagree with who you are. How do you deal with that, and how can people deal with that in general?
3: Well, it's important not to demonize the other side. Again, it's fine to have uh, disagreements about how you live your life, and uh, I respect people of different... Uh, faith traditions who want to live their, their lives in certain ways. I hope that they have that same shared respect for me. What, what's important is that we don't go into our corners and say, that's an evil person because maybe they don't, uh, accept the fact that I'm married or maybe on my side, they think that, uh, on, on somebody who's from the LGBT community who might have been stigmatized or attacked by religion might, uh, tend to demonize people of particular faiths. It's time to set that aside and say, look, uh, it's simply wrong to demonize people, to de- dehumanize people. It's OK to disagree, and it's OK to have those conversations. But we all have worth as individuals, and we need to highlight that.
2: So So one of the challenges, uh, Governor Polis, that you're very familiar with is the fact that nearly two-thirds of Republicans still believe the falsehood that Biden didn't win—President Biden didn't win the 2020 election. And that feels kind of fundamental to a lot of these disagreements. How do you deal with that? And how can you meet them where they are to help separate that fact from fiction?
3: Uh, frankly, I think that's more than a cause. It's actually more of a result of this dynamic that we're in that we've got to get out of, where people are uh, somehow viewing those opposed to them as uh, not of, of, of moral worth, um, of somehow uh, dehumanizing uh, and moving away from objective fact into the realm of subjective opinion. It's important to get the facts on the table. Uh, that includes education, outreach, uh, making sure that we have these authentic conversations. It doesn't get better by people retreating to their corners and only talking to people who agree with them. So I really encourage everyone to go ahead and call that, that cousin, that uncle, that neighbor who might feel a different way and not start, not start in an accusatory way, but say, let's have a real talk uh, about this and, and your concerns and ask them to explain why or how uh they didn't think an election turned out the way it is uh and again you can talk about the facts and, and have that conversation at that level rather than the level of d- doubting the motives of those who might feel differently than you
2: well one of the places people may start is where they agree uh or you may recommend that i'm guessing so i know you disagree with governor Cox on a lot what is an area you agree that might surprise people
3: Well, you know, just this morning, Governor Cox and I did a forum on uh, workforce innovation and readiness. How can we sort of uh, deconstruct and create a new way with apprenticeships and uh, students getting associate's degrees in high school and and highlight something that is a national issue? How do we make sure that students from all backgrounds get the skills they need to succeed? It fills a vital need of today's workforce. We have two job openings for every unemployed person in our state, but many of the people who are unemployed don't have the skills skills they need to get those good jobs. And how do you focus the discussion the innovation the great energy that civil society has on solving real problems like that rather on the rather than on the issues
2: that divide us? Well, that might surprise people or that is something people should be able to agree on. What do you what happens when you and Governor Cox discuss Donald Trump or do you
3: well, I, I like the way that uh, Governor Cox puts it. He says, he, and he happens to be Republican, obviously, the former president's Republican. He, said, uh, he says, I would be happy to mentor and teach the president, President Trump, to do better and use the language of unity rather than division. But, of course, uh, the phone call hasn't been returned, and I don't think he's terribly optimistic, nor am I, that President Trump will avail himself of this training. But here's another thing to point out, Jim. You will get uh, politicians, whether it's President Trump or somebody else, if there is a market For sowing division, discord, and doubting the motives of those on the other side, some politicians will rise to that and market in that. So, the real key question is, how do we look ourselves in the mirror as the electorate and say, we simply won't reward that kind of behavior? Uh, We will reward the behavior of people who run on the power of their ideas and their ideals who understand that those who oppose them uh, are people that are doing their best and believe that what they're doing is right. And let's have that discussion on an authentic level uh, rather than dying, trying to dehumanize those who we might happen to disagree with.
2: Governor Jared Polis, governor of the great state of Colorado, where half my family lives. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I really appreciate it coming up. I'll talk to former Congressman Tim Ryan about what he calls the exhausted majority in America and how he's trying to give voice to it. Plus, Marjorie Taylor Greene is on a roll, making the case for President Biden's economic agenda. It is kind of an in-kind contribution, and she's not the only Republican doing it. And later, gun safety activist David Hogg is launching a new initiative he calls the biggest thing he's done since March for Our Lives. We talk about that in our latest edition of The Weekend Routine. We're just getting started today, and we will be right back. with a fair amount of focus on multiple trump indictments understandably democrats are kind of in a tricky position especially if they're running for office heading into 2024 on the one hand it makes all sorts of sense for democrats to point out the dangers associated with another trump presidency like say the existential threat to our democracy. On the other hand, they also have to make a case for their agenda and what they would do if they're reelected or elected to office. Take the economy, for instance. The president is rightly bragging about good job numbers, the fact that inflation is finally cooling off and consumer confidence is up. But despite all of that, almost half of Americans aren't exactly convinced the economy is in a good place right now. A recent poll found that 49 percent of registered voters would rate the economy as poor. Compare that to the 20 percent who say the economy is excellent or good. And that could explain why, despite Trump's many indictments, President Biden is neck and neck with him among registered voters. To get over that hump, President Biden has to make his case to communities across America that are still struggling economically, help them understand how his policies would benefit them in places like Northeastern Ohio, known for its shuttered steel factories and manufacturing plants. My next guest represented this region in Congress for nearly two decades, and he's been a longtime advocate for talking about the communities who feel left behind. Joining me now is former Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, who just launched a new advocacy group called We the People, focused on voters disengaged with the current political climate. Hello, former congressman. I'll still call you congressman. I think you get that title (laughs) for life. So you've just (laughs) (laughs) launched— Great to see you. You, You've just launched the group We the People uh, to Mm -hmm. reach what you've— you're calling the exhausted majority, I think a lot of people would agree with that or relate to it. How do you reach people who are checked out from the political system? That's kind of an age-old political question.
4: Yeah, Well, I think first and foremost, you know, you let them know that they're not alone. That there are a lot of people out there that still care, but are exhausted. And you know, I'm, I'm, I get concerned because when I'm, I'm back in Ohio, I talk to people. They're like, I don't even know if I'm going to vote. I'm just, I'm tired of the whole thing, and that cannot be the answer. And so, we want to make sure people know that they have a home. Uh, with the other exhausted people in the country. And what we're going to do, Jen, is we're going to highlight uh, some of the really cool stuff that's happening in the country, the solutions that are out there, whether it's healing our vets, teaching our kids, you know, having a, an American energy policy. Like there mm-hmm. are real solutions that aren't in that red or blue. You know, got to put on the red shirt or the blue shirt. It's just like common sense American stuff. Want to highlight that. And I think that could start to give some people some hope.
2: So there's been an effort to do that. I mean, you ran for Senate in a campaign that was, I think, surprised people on what an impact you had, even though I know you're not currently a senator. It still didn't work. Right. President Biden is going out there in the country trying to talk about the policies, exactly those that he's advocated for, you've advocated for. How will this make a difference or what's going to be different about this effort?
4: Well, it's gonna, it's gonna take a while. And I think that the main message for us is this isn't like you just vote in an election and we outsource it to Washington DC. This is about a renewed commitment to our own civic responsibility, civic engagement. We want a We the People representative in all 3,142 counties in the United States. And again, highlighting the things that are working so that people say, well, maybe it is working. And you mentioned the economic, you know, opinion about people. We, you have to take a, like a half a step back, I think, and say this is after like 40 years of trauma, really mm-hmm. economic trauma for the vast majority of the people in the country. And I know and you and I have talked about this. I know you understand it. That trauma is still there um, mm-hmm. because of globalization and automation and the erosion of the middle class and nobody caring. And these communities have fallen apart and been forgotten. That still is in the DNA of most American families. And so it's going to take a while to get through that. I think the policies that the president has pushed, that I voted for when I was in Congress, the IRA, the CHIPS bill, Ohio's front and center to benefiting from all that. We're going to have a chip manufacturer here, data centers with natural gas power plants. Like Things are starting to move, but it's going to take a while for that to really sink in for most people to to where they can relax and realize they're going to have a bright future.
2: I know you've said you're not going to field a no-labels-type ticket or a third-party ticket, and you're not—I think you've said you're not going to get involved in the presidential level. Is there an electoral goal you have? Is it lower ticket races, or where do you see this effort investing?
4: Well, we're going to, you know, support the pro-democracy <laughs> of folks that are that are running, and we will be very hostile uh, and aggressive, um, you know, with our, with our media, you know, at, at, to fight the anti-democratic forces in the country, because there is no blossoming of the new ideas uh, if it's getting strangled by the anti-democratic forces that are out there. And clearly, President Trump, MAGA are the leaders of those anti-democratic forces. He's clearly not a serious person. And Biden is clearly the pro-democracy candidate. Um, But what we want to do, again, Jen, like We have ways that we are healing veterans. There's programs around MDMA, psilocybin, healing vets from deep trauma. We have trauma informed care, mindfulness in the schools, social and emotional learning combined in, in schools in Florida, turning things around. We have, you know, renewable energy companies working with the natural gas industry to displace coal being burned around the world. Like we want people to get excited about this. We want to organize them and then we want to advocate for pushing policies and, and investments into these ideas, and to me, you know, once you start getting a little momentum, it's, I heard Governor Paulus's conversation. Politics is downstream of culture. We've got to get into the culture if we're going to shift the politics.
2: So you you represented a district in northeastern Ohio for twenty years. Uh, you traveled across the state when you were running for Senate. Why I do you did. think? You start, you spent, you visit a lot of places. My, my husband's family's from Ohio, as you know well. Why do you think the state has flipped your, for, your former district and much of the state has flipped to be more of a Trump supporting state than a state that embraces what Tim Ryan, Joe Biden, others, uh, represent? Well,
4: I will say this. I think that the Democratic Party in the state over time has eroded, and and we need a more robust party in the state of Ohio. It's not like Pennsylvania. It's not like Michigan or Wisconsin. We've got still some work to do. We've got new leaders, and I think we're moving in the right direction. But we didn't have that off-year Democratic Party that could help with turnout. And so, in a non-presidential year, um, you know, we got four over 400,000 crossover voters who voted for me and voted for the Republican governor, which is really unheard of in modern politics to see that level of crossover. We didn't get the base turnout. So I think Sherrod Brown's running um, next year. He's going to have a presidential-level turnout. He'll get the crossover appeal, I think, that I got. Um, And so I think it's still a a swing state in a lot of ways. We just have to build the party back up.
2: Congressman Tim Ryan, I need to come visit you in Ohio. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. And coming up, ahead of the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, Republicans take a victory lap for something they voted against. I've got a few thoughts on the blatant hypocrisy and what it tells us about the political moment we're living in. And later, why did gun safety activist David Hogg join our shooting club at Harvard? That surprised me, too. We discussed that and much more during a walk through Washington. We're back after a quick break. In the movie version, politics can be pretty simple. First, voters elect someone they think will best represent their interests. Then that elected official will work and take votes in Washington on their behalf, behalf of the people they're representing, to serve the interests of the people they're representing, delivering on their promises to make their constituents' lives better, even when at times it's politically difficult. The politician then provides updates and what they've been working on, what they've been up to, to the people who elected them. And finally, if the voters are still happy with their record by the next campaign, they'll elect them again. But recently, a number of Republican politicians have skipped a pretty important step in that process. Apparently, for this crop of elected officials, voting against legislation and even aggressively attacking that legislation does not prevent you from taking credit for its benefits. Maybe they think no one will notice. Unclear. Let's start with infrastructure. It was passed with bipartisan support, and the members who supported it should absolutely go out and brag about the benefits. Many of them have. The problem is that a number of Republican members who voted against the bipartisan infrastructure package have since come out of the woodwork to tout the benefits to their districts. Congressman Ashley Hinson of Iowa called the bipartisan infrastructure package, quote, Washington gamesmanship, spending at its worst. Strong words, Congresswoman. Sounds like you hate that bill. But two months later, she praised the nearly eight hundred and thirty million dollars in federal funding that the state received as game changing. That's quite a flip. Senator Tommy Tuberville, remember that guy, of Alabama, voted against the bill because it was, quote, loaded with giveaways to big cities and pet projects that have little to do with real infrastructure. So it all seemed to get really under his skin, investing in roads and railways and bridges, except apparently when it came to projects in his own state of Alabama. Just last month, the senator lauded the billion dollars his state received to boost efforts to expand broadband access, which, by the way, who is against broadband access? Congresswoman Nancy Mace called the infrastructure bill a fiasco and a socialist wish list. Recently, she held a press conference to discuss the nearly $30 million in funding that was secured for the Charleston Area Regional Transportation Authority. Doesn't sound like she thinks that was a fiasco. Congressman Sam Graves, the chair of the, the chairman of the House Transportation Committee, was another who voted against the bill. But that didn't stop him from posting this after his district received funding for highway repairs. This is what he posted. Congratulations to all who helped secure this funding. Congratulations indeed. Not to him though, I guess. Look, I get it. Everybody loves infrastructure. People want their roads and their railways and their bridges improved. They want broadband access. It's an easy thing to praise, even if you did vote against it. But what's interesting is that it's not just infrastructure funds that some Republicans are trying to take credit for. It's also the expansion of clean manufacturing in districts across the country. Expansion that has boomed in large part because of the clean energy tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act or the big climate bill that was passed. Take a look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. In August of 2022, the congressman said that clean energy would, quote, put America back into darkness. I don't think she understands the science there. And that the Inflation Reduction Act was, quote, an America last disaster. But in April, Green tweeted favorably about the expansion of the solar company q and the jobs it would create in her district. Here's the thing. I see. I think you know where I'm going here. QCells specifically attributed the new investment to the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. In Oklahoma, Governor Kevin Stitt praised a new billion-dollar investment in a solar cell and panel factory. Governor Stitt had called the Inflation Reduction Act, quote, "...disastrous and insanity." Investing in clean energy is insanity, everyone. And yet, according to the company, the new investment was made because of the tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act. I could go on here, but as much as Republicans decry President Biden's legislation, they and their communities are all largely benefiting. And no surprise, because these types of investments are hugely popular. They also help the economy. They grow industries. They put people back to work. That's a good thing. That's how good legislation is supposed to work. It helps everyone, even the ones who try to take credit after attempting to tank its success. Again, maybe they thought they wouldn't notice. Up next, I'll talk to the man who might understand better than anyone the frustration of watching Republicans try and benefit from the very policies they were so staunchly against. As director of the White House Economic Council, Brian Deese was a key negotiator on the IRA and the infrastructure bill. He joins me after a quick break. One year ago, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, an expansive economic package that, among other things, provided new funds to the IRS, lowered prescription drug prices and created unprecedented investments toward domestic clean energy as a big climate bill. Since it was signed into law, Republicans have pointed to its high price tag as an example of wasteful Democratic spending. But one year later, it looks like it might have been the right investment. Across America, multiple states are seeing a manufacturing boom. GDP grew faster than expected during the second quarter of this year. And, oh yeah, inflation is at its lowest point in two years. Joining me now to discuss the impact of the IRA, but also what is behind the disconnect we are seeing between economic data and the way voters are feeling about the economy is my friend and former colleague, multiple times over, Brian Deese. He's the former director of the White House National Economic Council. So Brian, I gotta start with the thought bubble of what is happening in your head. When you see Republicans out there who voted against the IRA, who voted against the infrastructure package, both bills you help negotiate, taking credit for it and talking about the benefits in their district. What is the thought bubble in your head?
5: <laughs> well, it's good to see you, Jen. I, I, I think I have always been a strong believer that good economic policy ultimately makes good politics. And I think that this is going to be one of the great examples of that. Um, I guess what's in that thought bubble to me, frankly, is Any day that we're having a debate about who gets credit for improbable economic progress and a manufacturing boom in America is a good day in my book. It's a good day for the country, and it's a good day for the president, too. Because, ultimately, the president went out and made a very courageous choice. He committed to fighting for this legislation, even when it seemed very hard. And there were some lonely, lonely times over the course of the last two years on that front. Uh, But he, along with partners, got it done— based on an economic theory, that investing in this country would help to unlock a manufacturing boom, would help to unlock long-term economic growth. And a year in, I think we're seeing outcomes that exceed almost everybody's expectations. And it's really hard to deny that progress the closer to the ground you get, the closer to a community that you get. And ultimately, if Republicans want to have that debate about who deserves credit. You're starting that debate from an acceptance that we're making economic progress. And that's a good thing for the country. Good thing for the president.
2: Now, even with this progress and the economic data does support that argument, of course, um, including the inflation numbers going down lowest in two years. But. In polls, the American public, almost half of them, don't feel like the economy is going well. What do you... I know you're focused on the policy side always have been, but you're a politically savvy guy, too. I mean, what do you attribute that to?
5: Like, I think there's two things going on. One is we have just been through a period of economic trauma. The COVID crisis and its aftermath was unlike anything that this country has lived through in 100 years. And so... We're in a period of transition, and it's gonna take some time. The second thing is that the economic anxiety that people feel has been years and decades in the making as well, and so people naturally are hesitant to accept when they see progress on the horizon. They want to know, is that progress going to continue? So I think that that's a natural process. And we economists say that this data operates with a lag. So you start to see the economic data improving. Then you start to see confidence improving. We're starting to see that over the course of the last couple of months. And that should translate into people's sentiment on the uh, economy as well. So, you know, I I think that that's uh, what's behind it. But it also goes to some of the points that you've been making. Democrats and this president need to be out there making the case and meeting people where they are and helping them understand why investments in infrastructure, investments in clean energy manufacturing are actually going to be relevant to their lives. And that's that's a case that needs to be made, needs to be made very vigorously over the course of the next months and years.
2: In the many foxholes I've been with you, a lot of them have been legislative battles. And while Congress is on a big break right now in August, they're going to come back and the government could shut down. What is that going to come down to in your assessment? And how worried about are you about that happening?
5: Well, look, Congress and the president avoided the most dangerous uh, economic issue earlier this summer. Uh, And the fact that the debt limit was even on the table was a self-inflicted threat to the economy. But they found a way through it. And the way they found the way through it was to agree on funding levels for the next year. And so, you know, I think what should happen is clear, is Congress should come together and should write funding bills consistent with that agreement. They should get that done. They should pass bills um, and they should move on. What I think will happen is we're going to have a lot of drama about uh, fighting about funding. And ultimately, we're likely to see the government get funded in small increments and delays, which is uh, not efficient, uh, but we have come to get used to. Uh, Could we have a government shutdown? I think it is uh, very possible. And ultimately, it's going to come down to whether the Republican caucus can uh, accept and reflect the fact that their leadership agreed to a set of funding levels and then operate against those. And then of course, as you and I have lived through on multiple occasions, there's always the risk that some unrelated ideological issue gets injected into the funding process and blows it all up. I hope that won't happen. I think it very well might, but in terms of the overall macro economy, the biggest risk was the debt limit and we've taken that off the table for the time being.
2: Before I let you go, we have to go full nerdy here because I have to ask you about the recent downgrade by Fitch of the U.S. government's credit rating, uh, and what uh, it was credit it was downgraded from a AAA to a, a AA plus, and the citation in that in that decision was fiscal deterioration over the next three years and repeated down the wire debt ceiling negotiations, which was of course one of the warnings around this negotiation. What's your read of that move? How concerned should people be? And what are the things that could have an impact on additional downgrades in the coming months?
5: Like I think the actual decision by Fitch is incoherent. Um, they cited multiple rationales, none of which made sense, um, including data that deteriorated under the last administration and have improved. And as you say, including the concern of brinksmanship that was just addressed uh, by the president uh, and Congress recently. So I, I think that really... The actual Fitch decision is, uh, should be irrelevant economically. We have a broader question about uh, how do we continue to make progress in strengthening our fiscal position Uh, and that's something that you know policymakers are going to have to take seriously and frankly in the election i think um, republicans are going to have to make a decision about whether they continue to be for completely unpaid for tax cuts in a fiscal environment where that's harder and harder to justify Uh, but in terms of the actual decision here my hope um, and certainly what what the market should be doing is looking through this issue because i don't think there's uh, much to justify what fitch did
2: Brian Deese. I always love talking about talking with you. It always brings me way back. I appreciate it. Up next, he's he's become one of the most prominent gun safety activists in our country, all before he even earned his diploma. Now that he's graduated from Harvard, David Hogg is stepping up his activism in a big way. I recently caught up with him to talk about that and the importance of finding common ground in our politics. That's next. What have you learned over the last couple of years about what works and what doesn't that you wish others would know?
6: It's a little bit different for me because I'm known by a lot of people who are very big NRA supporters, for example, as the face of gun control, right? And for them, they assume a lot of things when they come to me. They assume that I'm going to hate
2: them. How do you ease their concerns?
6: So what happens a lot of the time, Jen, is people will message me and say awful things. They'll say, you know, some kind of curse word or profanity that I cannot say Mm. on TV. And I'll say, look, I can respect that you don't agree with me, but I can't accept the fact that, you know, neither of us wants gun violence to continue and we can't find any common ground here at all well what i'll say is you know is there anything i could say to you that would change your mind potentially any amount of information most of the time they say no I'm like okay got it how about instead of debating this we focus on what we can't agree on
0: hey everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call
1: For the love of home.
2: David Hogg is now a well-known name in the fight for common sense gun reform in this country. He's been outspoken about the need for change since the mass shooting at his high school in Parkland, Florida, back in February of 2018. Now, as a recent Harvard graduate... He's now in Washington, spearheading the March for Our Lives efforts leading up to the 2024 election. And now he's stepping up his efforts to mobilize young voters with a new PAC he's just launched called Leaders We Deserve. The goal is to elect more young people to state legislatures and to Congress.
6: Our generation refuses to back down. In 2018, we shattered youth voter turnout records. In 2020, we helped power President Biden to victory. And in 2022, we were critical in holding off a Republican red wave. Now, we're not just voting. We're running for office and we're winning.
2: I recently met up with David here in Washington to talk about his next chapter and to visit the exact spot he was when he launched into the national spotlight more than five years ago hi david great to see you thanks for spending some time with me this afternoon thank you for having me let's have a seat yeah of course you just graduated which obviously has led you here so congratulations on that thank you now at your graduation you tweeted out a video Mm -hmm. thanking laura ingram and marjorie taylor green and the haters i guess i can characterize Uh, I loved that because I think fighting back at people who are attacking you is so important. But why did you do that? And was the reaction what you thought it would be?
6: Oh, the reaction was just what I thought it was going to be. I think the, the reason why I did that is because I wanted to show other young people that, you know, you don't have to cower to bullies. We can do the work and keep getting educated and you don't need to listen to the haters. There
2: are things about your background that surprised me as I learned about it, including Mm -hmm. the fact that you joined a shooting club. Is this correct?
6: I did. In college. I did.
2: Um, why did you do that um and does right. that surprise people like me when they learn yeah. it i'm sure it does
6: well i mean it i think this is really my first time talking in any formal context about why i did that it was after one of the many shootings that had happened this year that i was thinking to myself i just i could not sleep that i and i was thinking what it what is the last thing like what have i not done you know we've talked uh to counter protesters we've talked to people who support us we've rallied sport we've turned out voters and ultimately what I realized is the only thing that I haven't done is I haven't gone directly to the pe- a lot of the people who do disagree with me, mm-hmm. right? And meet them where they're at. And surely that's not for everybody in the gun violence prevention movement by any means, but I grew up around guns because my dad was an FBI agent. Mm-hmm. You know, My first time shooting guns was when I was in fourth grade and I thought what better way to demonstrate that I understand what I'm talking about here than to go out and learn more about gun safety talk to gun owners who don't agree with me and many of whom who do agree with me, right? Because there are gun owners, a lot of them, who do support the stuff that we're talking about here.
2: The U.S. also had its deadliest six months of mass killings since 2006. One, how frustrating is that to you? And what do you attribute that to as somebody who's been involved in this movement for several years now?
6: It's very frustrating, extremely frustrating. And I attribute that to, you know, it's it's not hard to figure out. We've sold 100 million more guns basically since 2018. They're 400 million guns in this country now. If you sell more guns, you're going to have more gun deaths.
2: It's not rocket science, right? I want to ask, you just launched a PAC uh, to elect more young candidates to state legislatures and Congress. It's called Leaders We Deserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did this come about, and what do you hope to achieve with it?
6: The way that it came about is Maxwell Frost, the youngest member of Congress, was formerly working for March for Our Lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and with March, we'd seen the power of young people turning out across the country. And working with Maxwell's campaign manager, Kevin Lada, we realized how amazing it is that he defeated two former members of Congress mm-hmm. and a really well-connected state legislator. And we wanted to bring that model to a place where it really counts. Of course, Congress is great, but the, re- the worst legislation in the country is coming from the states. Don't say gay. Permitless carry, right? All of these horrifying pieces of legislation, the far right war on our children, the fight again to loosen gun laws, even as gun violence gets far worse in this country, it's not coming from Congress. It's coming from the states. So what we want to do here is we're working to help get candidates plugged into the resources and connections that they need to succeed, to help become the next generation of Maxwell's, but not just in D.C., in Tallahassee.
2: You've launched a PAC. Are you going to get engaged beyond that in 2024? Are you going to endorse Joe Biden, for example?
6: Yes, of course. That goes without saying, honestly, because he's been such a champion of gun violence prevention, uh, even before it was popular with a lot of the work that he did around the assault weapons ban and other things like that.
2: Now, you're pretty well known for something that launched not too far from here. Right. Should we go check it out?
6: Yes. Of course. Okay, let's
2: walk over there. Thank you. Okay. Oh, well, that's a, that's a good friend to have. I mean, it's all, it's all dependent on the park. So here we are at basically the scene of where the main stage was right. uh, and for the march now, five years ago, right. back in 2018 following the mass shooting at your high school in Parkland, Florida, how does it feel to be back here? And what does it make you think of when you reflect on that day?
6: It makes me think of how we had the largest youth voter protest since Vietnam and the hope, right? When I, when you were a young person, when I was speaking there, I couldn't see it at the time because I was a young person, obviously.
2: You're still a young person, but yes.
6: But as I've gotten older, I start to understand why it meant so much to people, what we were doing, because it gave them hope because we were young people that had gone through so much, but we were standing up for something, unlike a lot of the people in the building behind us. We actually stood for something, right? It makes me very hopeful that that happened, but it also is heartbreaking for me to know that despite that, despite feeling like we we have all this momentum and everything, you know, Congress only changed a little bit by helping fund more gun violence Mm -hmm. prevention.
2: What do you do for yourself to keep your mental health in check and prevent your own burnout?
6: Well... Um, I hike a lot, for one, mm-hmm. and I, uh, I watch The Office a lot, okay. um, and I, I read a lot of books um, to help just learn. I think being in college was a really good way of helping me, preventing me from burning out, because it taught me how to just have at least some semblance of a normal life and routine that is not related to everyday shootings that happen. And I think what's been the most helpful, even though this is not an activity, it's more knowledge. It's knowing that the movement is not all on any one person.
2: David, thank you for spending the time with me this afternoon. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Luckily, we didn't
6: get too sweaty. I know.
2: (laughs) Speak for yourself. I will definitely be keeping a close eye on what David Hogg is up to as he settles into his new life here in Washington. We're coming right back after a short break. Stay with us. That does it for me today. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. We'll be back right here next Sunday at noon Eastern. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works
1: for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best.